Hi, and welcome to Network AF. Today, I'm pleased to have my friend, Jay Adelson, who I've known for many decades um, and uh, used his services, and I'm proud to have him as an investor in my projects with us. And uh, Jay, could you give us a quick intro? Tell us about Jay. Sure. Well, first of all, Avi, I'm, I'm honored to be <laughs> with you today. It's always an honor to be speaking to you and fun. Um, so I'm Jay. I, I've been in the internet business since 1993, give or take, um, when I was broke trying to be a, a filmmaker and audio engineer. And a friend of mine, Jeff Rizzo, got me a job at Netcom installing routers for oh. people. And that was a very long time ago. And then if you just sort of like hit me in the back of the head with a bottle and I wake up 30 years later, um, founded 14 companies, uh, most of them failures, a few good ones, um, known for probably Equinix and Dig and Revision 3 and a couple other things in there and, and um, ended up kind of leaving that world and becoming a pinball professional. And that is why I'm sitting in my office filled with pinball machines right now. <laughs> so that's pinball design, creation, repair, playing? Well, you know there's an internet twist to this, right? I mean, okay. come on, there has to be an internet yes, twist. Yes, of course. Um, I'm really into retro stuff. And so I just thought it would be really fun to be able to connect to old arcade games, you know, mostly pinball, but basically yeah. anything and push the scores and achievements like you do on Xbox Live. And uh, didn't quite anticipate just how challenging a technical task that would be. Uh, and that was like seven years ago, which is crazy to think. But I mean, I still operate a venture fund, you know, the one that we invested in, in Kentic with and, mm -hmm. and that. But I pretty much stepped out of that world in 2017 to do this always which is i know so you're iot at the end iot i know we were we were an internet infrastructure and iot investor yes and i remember learning that iot is a terrible business and then i went and founded an iot company well it seems to be doing okay for some sarah and some others um you know that started really about the time of kentic and you know i don't come from the skater land and all that but Turns out there seems to be a good business in connecting fleets and pumps and stuff like that. Um, uh, so I just happened to come from the other side of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, Gail, I don't have it all set up. Um, Gail does not prefer, she doesn't love my hobby uh, of collecting vintage 8-bit computers back from when you could understand everything about the hardware software. If I were actually at home, instead of having a background of at home, I would, I'd show you the Commodore 64 over there or yeah. you know, Pro. go and get a K Pro or an Acorn if I was talking to uh, to someone from the UK. Uh, but she calls it Amos, obviously Museum of Stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, By the way, if you're interested in taking over my collection of Apple IIs, I have every one, every model. Oh, I, 30, I 32 of them. <laughs> I am very interested. Uh, oh, really? I have a warehouse thanks to a friend of mine, not warehouse, sorry, it's a storage unit. It's actually, it's effectively on the Ashburn campus. So, you know, the post office uh, that uh, Equinix killed 
uh, kicked out that's on the original Equinix campus there I or in, in not the original but the 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 I remember it had a, it had a catwalk for people with guns yeah yeah so that that all got torn down and that's I don't know it was DC 11 or something so the Guardian self-storage there and so a friend of mine gave me one of every not a spark not a not a sun one or no there is a sun two and then every sun three and four and spark up to a 450. I don't have like an E10K. Um, wow. Actually, no, no, there is a 4500. Um, so, uh, which used to be the, the cheapest way to get a lot of RAM used, but the power bill was not fun. So, now are they operational? Uh, in theory, I haven't fired them up, but I have a bid image of 413U1 and 414 uh, with my custom kernel for sin flood, you know, for like sin cookies that we had to do back when Panix was a customer who was being attacked. So, wow. Um, you know, the fun old days. But you yeah. worked at DEC. I did. I worked in the Network Systems Laboratory, which is, sounds so, like I might know something about networking. Believe me, I don't. Like the, the thing about the NSL was, it was like a, it was like the Los Eisley or Moss Eisley. Moss Eisley. Like, like we call that Usenet now. A uh, wretched hive of bugs and flamers, you know, yes. You know, I... I or Dig or, you know, you know I, or whatever. I just couldn't believe I was there. Like, I felt like... I felt like I was... Like, somebody was going to figure me out. And that I was like imposter syndrome in the middle of this lab next to Paul Vixie, you know, and yeah. Stephen Stewart and... Uh-huh. You know, and of course, Al Avery and all of these guys who were really doing cool stuff. And I was so excited Um, and they could tell (laughs) (laughs) they could tell. Uh, But I, I was hopelessly addicted to this idea of Internet scale. And I perhaps became a little too obsessed with it to uh, my wife, Brenda. she still makes a joke that if my phone rings in the middle of the night, she always says the same thing, which is tell him to reboot the portmaster. <laughs> the port <laughs> monster. For, the for port monster, people. yes. Yeah. Livingston Portmaster was like yes. most early ISPs use something similar for they all use that. Or if I were again, if I had an updated picture of my actual background at home, I have a, a, a micro annex ter- a terminal no server. I use the Zylogix annex later living uh, later um, Wellfleet, I guess, bought them. Um, so right. you know, but, man, I yeah, there was a lot of a lot of late nights, and I was an operations manager. To be clear, I was like some people have said OJ founded PAX. That's not really true. I mean, I mean it was operational as an exchange point for easily a year before. Well, I remember, well, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we have to talk about, uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I remember, um, uh, when I first, uh, well, well, okay. So who, who did, who did start it? <laughs> it well, was, it was okay. Alta Vista connectivity or uh, there it's, it's an interesting. So, so I would love for Paul or Steven, to one day get into the really boring details of this, because I'll tell you what I know, right? Was that when I was running network engineering and operations at Netcom, which um, I, again, have no idea how that happened, but I was operating there. um, The DEC network systems lab is in Palo Alto, 
um, and it was in a basement of this of what is currently now the PAX. And uh, Paul, who was part of the lab working for Brian Reed, who was the director of the of the lab, had somehow convinced uh, Bill Yunt and a couple other folks involved with Barnett and Alternet, who had been exchanging traffic in the Stanford lab, computer lab, I believe. Because I remember Paul had showed me the, I think the, the Ames side. No, no, he showed me the kicks. He showed Ooh. me the kicks, not the Ames side of Mae West. He showed me the commercial internet exchange, which was in some office park, you know, because it was the secrets of peering and who, if you go to the kicks, do you get- That's peer? right. No, that's that's right. And I think that that- you know, Paul is a visionary in a lot of ways. And I think that one of the things that he recognized around this time when he was, you know, helping to, I think, administrate that interconnect mm-hmm. is he figured out that there was there was a huge issue on where a place was and who was operating it. Because, you know, in the case of Stanford, I think they had a squirrel literally take out the the, the data center and take out like half of the Western seaboard of the internet for, for some period of time. I mean, it's a, it's a story that everyone tells in some form. I've never heard it, but I'll ask. But I mean, everyone's got a squirrel was in the power box story about their data center going down. This and is some before chart- I hit the EPO button to exit. I mean, that would make a lot of sense, right? And it, so, you know, you lean against something and it pops off. I guess... Stanford setup had never been set up for you know reliability. Neither was the basement of the network systems lab, but somehow uh, Paul convinced Alternet and Barnett to move into that basement and, and connect for, for people to keep track. So Alternet was commercial. Um, Barnett was the Bay Area regional network that was. They were all semi-commercial, the regional networks, but it was sort of the the government NSF, you know, access network. So. Right. This is before the official. Right. Split. Or just no, this is just after the contract was handed, I think, to CO to, you know, to the various carriers. Yeah. 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 And um, and he so so he moves it in there, and I think he he you know, Deck was also a hardware manufacturer and manufactured. Uh, network switches, and they made a, a FIDI switch or a fiber uh, interconnect. Mm-hmm. And so he had them, I think, originally connecting on a Cisco, like serial number one of some <laughs> old Cisco. And then, and then he, in parallel, <clears throat> in parallel, he started the commercial internet exchange with Barb Dooley. Um, and that initially, I think, was a lobbying organization designed to sort of speak on behalf the policy side of it. Right. And peering and yeah, exactly. Cause I don't think that, you know, at that time it was, it was anarchy. It was the, yeah. <laughs> it was the, it was the wild west. Right. And there wasn't a lot of regulation or oversight or thought given to how this stuff rolled out. And I think that Paul felt very strongly that uh, it should be community-based managed um, uh, exchange point. Um, and meanwhile, though, he was doing this at digital. And so digital decided to productize it as, as what business unit inside of the network systems laboratory. And when that happened, that's when Al Avery took over as the general manager 
and he hired me to basically run operations. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, by the way, I, I, I think that Paul was right on a lot of fronts in that, uh, you know, there is challenges when you're commercially driven, right? Because you're, you know, you're on behest of the, the shareholders and that's an issue. Uh, the, the flip side though is community-based organizations, just ask all the European exchange point operators to like move anything one port over is like a year of debate. And well, I just, I remember, cause contemporaneously, Doug Humphrey had showed me a little bit before, a year before like the 1919 Gallows basement, you know, May East, where you know, like UUNet and PSI routers were on a, on a power strip on a two prong extension cord plugged into the wall. And, you know, uh, I, I remember visiting PAX and of course, AltaVista was like there and AltaVista was the cool search engine at the time to, to use the DAC hardware, which I was a fan of. I'm not a big VMS fan, but, you know, um, but, uh, you know, I, I, other than architecture, but, you know, more of a Unix guy. But <clears throat> I remember thinking, wow, this is like real because, you know, going to Kix, going to May East, going to May West, and, you know, with no offense to our, you know, uh, MFS sisters and brothers, you know, it was a little bit of a hack job. It was like my, my you know, my colo in Philly where I convinced MFS to give me a rack for every T1 that I sold. And suddenly I owned this whole data center. It was all DC power and, you know, had only AC equipment. And they're like, what are all these computer things that you're putting in our in our building, yeah. but it was, you know, it was like a room in an office building full of lawyers. And, you know, I remember going to PAX, I was like, ooh, they only turn on, because the guard shack, the guard thing was upstairs. To go downstairs, they only turn on the lights for the people that are there. So you can't really snoop quite as much. There was a set of That's rules true. you had to follow. And I was like, wow, this is getting real. Yeah, you know, uh, I have to say, I, I remember, that a lot of that feeling was planned and, and thought through by Brian Reed. Brian, who, you know, brilliant, you know, network uh, engineer who, who ran the, the systems laboratory there, hired a, an art designer huh. to come up with like colors and patterns and, and you know, um, fun lighting uh to try and make a very small space evoke evoke some kind of uh sense of of safety and reliability and importance and and the thought there was well you're kind of you know building an empty exchange point and hoping people will come mm -hmm. and i think the idea was is that if you build it and you and you enforce these rules and you're, and you're, you know, think about it in the tradition of maybe the finance and, you know, the banking industry. But not as annoying as doing colo in a CO, you know, with a phone exactly. company, which was very annoying at the time. I mean, there, there was a certain amount of, you know, lipstick on the pig, so to speak, you know, a certain amount of it was, uh, uh, you know, dressing in front of what was a very roughly built data center that was incredibly effective giving the small, it was 5,000 square feet. Right. 
So, so people who are like building their, their first data center at 250,000 square feet. And how many gigawatts was it? How many gigawatts? How many? Oh man. I, I, 200 KVA? Less than that. I mean, I think we might've said that. (laughs) And I remember negotiating with. For software people out there, like you can now have the equivalent of like 20 houses of power in one cabinet with or without, you know, immersive cooling. But at the time, you know, yeah. it was not that much more than a few light bulbs per cabinet worth of, you know, heat and power that one was uh, dispersing. So um, yeah, that was the internet. That was the core. I mean, by the way, if you want training on how not to build a data center, you know, one of the things you could do is take someone familiar with building out points of presence like I was mm-hmm. and put them in this, you know, spaghetti setup and tell them that the entire internet depended on its functionality, right? And uh, we had some great assistance. Um, there was a, a contracting firm named MCM and this, this guy named Jim Brush who looked like the prospector from like the Toy Story movies, like uh-huh. exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And he would walk in and basically explain how in the days that they invented electricity, right. this was how they solved this problem for you know this or that. And I learned all the lingo and uh, learned basically how to talk to electrical engineers, mm-hmm. not necessarily how to be one, but right. you know, certainly how to understand that. And I think that Al and I began, that was when we started fantasizing over beers and cigars, how to, you know, how could we do it? If money was no object, what would it look like? And and how could we how could we grow this thing? Because we were also friends with all of the network operators, and and they would complain about you know Tyson's Corner, you know a, a parking garage, and yeah, eighty one hundred boo, nineteen nineteen gallows, the uh, you know yeah. And there was one there was one exchange point. I believe somebody actually perished due to an electrical accident. I don't know if you knew about that. We won't, we won't name any names, but, but some of the folks watching your, your uh, video will probably remember that I think it was right around, uh, had to have been 98 or 99. There was a, uh, an incident where an electrical technician and a carrier exchange point uh, touched the wrong thing. It was not good. And I mean, so like- I went to the Pensacola app and I remember, oh, yeah. you know, that was a little bit too real. That, that was more like, that was closer to the CO level of, uh, you know, how, how, how things thought, but it was pretty big, you know, for what was it, there. It's arguably true that carriers knew more about compacting a lot of network in a small space better than anybody else. Sure. I just think that um, it was never a question of someone losing a lot of money well, at least from a commercial internet standpoint, until way later. Mm-hmm. And once, once you got to that point where content eyeballs and the path between them kind of leveled out in importance in the ecosystem, mm-hmm. then you kind of had to change the way you designed all that stuff, you know, but that well, was remember, really fun. I remember being at Ananog 
unlike some people I can't remember like yes Nanog 12 was in this city and you know whatever <laughs> and I think it was you had announced maybe Bill was up there had announced Equinix and I'm like Equinox they make serial port cards <laughs> you know it's like what but but you know you mentioned rules and so we do have to tell the story about the cutting off of the non-Telster transit of Australia I have a friend you know I I, I sometimes I definitely try to figure out what are all the ways to interpret the rules, uh, you know, to create good for humanity and myself. But um, uh, we knew one of the rules of PAX was thou shalt not run thine own cross connects, right? Now, a lot of people in data centers now will, run, will use passive optics to pay for a cross connect and make eight cross connects in it, or, you know, uh, Packet Fabric version one, Equinix got upset with me. And so we should have shut down, you know, because it was clear that we were trying to do multi data center, but when people figured out it was cheaper to do exchange in the building over it, uh, this is before OpenIX started to mm -hmm. drive the prices down, you know, but so uh, my friend and a uh, person who's less, uh, I mean, he is aware of the rules, but feels less constrained by that Andrew Koo. I run a cross connect between our, we each had a cabinet, net access had a cabinet and, uh, and, and he, our cage, not cabinet. Sorry, no, 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 not cage, relay rack. That's right. <laughs> sorry, relay rack. That's right. Not, not even cage or cabinet. I'm thinking, you know, modern. And, uh, and I was giving him transit over, I think actually I was tunneling to make it look like I had, you know, at least line to that location. And then he called me and he said, Avi, you know, my transit's down. I think it was running AJS plus at the time. And uh, yeah, I remember getting a call from you, hugely apologetic. And he's like, Avi, I'm really torn here because, you know, uh, you guys violated the policy, but you should never interrupt operating networks. We should talk about these oh, things. No, wait. Okay. So here's the untold part of this story. Okay. All right. So to be clear, you're en you end up by, by terminating this cross connect, you, you definitely turn off a, a good portion of the continent of, of Australia. So, yeah, right. so, you know, probably not uh, a great decision. Um, so we had an operations manager at the time who worked for me, a guy named John Pedro. And almost anybody who was in the internet space back then knew who John was, a very sweet guy who worked at the PACS and was responsible for, you know, sort of managing the day-to-day -day task work of the technicians who run the CrossConnects. And he discovered this cross-connect, which was surreptitiously run between two points and told me about it and asked me what I think, what I thought he should do. And I said, well, I think you should email everyone and let them know. And, and apparently this went on for several months where, oh, where John was that. emailing someone. Okay. By the way, I don't know if it was Stuart or Andrew, like, I don't know who who it was he was emailing, if he was doing it right, probably should have been me. We had no escalation process for this. Because <laughs> we remember we're- circuit database. And, or, but, but, the, but the thing is, is that I think, it, it, okay, this might be revisionist memory, but the way I remember it was, we discovered it and we said, hey, if you pay us whatever the cross-connect price is right. per month, we're good. Just send us the money, you know, and, and we'll be good. I have no idea how billing worked at digital. Like I, I can't remember. I remember we had just invented these, these terms of CNI and GNI and INI and PNI. Uh -huh. 
and we and we were like inventing one for like you know <laughs> within a cage kind of thing and i guess some time passed and and i don't know the, it, I, it makes me remember when it happened because it was in the middle of the night i got a call um uh, actually i got a page and you said reboot John. the port master basically like you know, this is down and this is a big deal because it affected a lot of well, other so, folks. So at the time, this was supporting satellite-based bandwidth augmentation. So people would buy their E1s in Australia and they'd be full on the inbound side, but they'd have more outbound. So we were selling, you know, eight meg circuits that were, you know, basically one-way frame relay for people to get excess capacity for, you know, and they could make SSH wow. and IRC go over terrestrial and Usenet and web caching go over, you know, satellites. So um, there were, it was, it was a lot of circuits were, you know, and for latency, it was satellite back, but this was supporting, this was the transit for that satellite thing. So there were a lot of small networks. It wasn't affecting Telstra, but there were a lot of small networks. Yeah. yeah. And the other problem was how he did it, because Back then, our cross connects were largely, I think, multi-mode fiber, if I recall. And he cut it with a pair of scissors. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't just pull it out. Yeah. I don't know. Like, he, he would get angry sometimes. And this must have really made... You have to understand, he was a very sweet guy. Like, very peace, peaceful. He would calm you down. Very well organized. Not the kind of guy that would do something vindictively in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And so for him to cut it with a pair of scissors, which is the part I remember, implies a long history of battle. With prejudice, yes. Yeah. You know, PAX had a cable plant. It had a paper system for knowing, you know, what was plugged into what. It had all of these sort of like inherited uh, characteristics from the Paul Vixie, you know, and also Barnett days is definitely, you know, real engineering, you know, I mean, scientific it's, computing and business computing yeah. and, you know. It's, you know, there is a, there is a, um, well, here's the, the, the ultimate, the ultimate thing about that whole operation is that it never went away. Like, like the PACs would later, you know, become acquired by, uh, data? No, no, before no, that no, it no. was above net. Above net, yeah. Sorry, what I was, was there. What was the name? I was running engineering at the time. Yeah. What What was the? It was above net was acquired then though. That by MFN. By MFN, and then right. and then MFN uh, acquired. I think or I don't know which order, but it had the packs, mm -hmm. and then later switch and data acquired them. Right. Or and acquired so packs from. From MFN, maybe. We yeah, that sounds right. You look it up. Yeah. And and then ironically, I I don't know, a decade later, maybe more. It's like uh, it's like Chad Gadya, but with networks. Exactly. I mean, everything came round. Yes. And Equinix ended up owning mm -hmm. the packs. And that it was after I hadn't returned to the building the entire time oh, until Equinix acquired PAX, like, I don't know, 15 years later or something like mm -hmm. that. And, uh, and uh, despite the fact that the original deal, when, when Al and I left 
PACs, the deal we struck with Bill Strecker, who was the CTO of digital at the time, because digital was getting acquired by Compaq, Compaq, yeah, was that if they were going to sell, that we would get a right of first refusal. And um, let's just say that, uh, oh, and we agreed on a price. I think it was like oh, 30 million or something like that's that. That's advantageous to the fixer price. Yeah, and and I think it sold to above net for like two or three times that. So right. we were out of the market, but but yeah, came around. So <laughs> it's, it's a funny. Thank you. Equinix. <laughs> Equinix is a, a customer. We all of you know we have some stuff in DRT, but for the most part, I'm an old server hugger. So as a SaaS company, we make our own cloud in Equinix. Back That's where wonderful. I used to have my Usenet, where I bootstrapped, you know, uh, Cloud Helix that you know can take uh, on my Usenet servers. Um, but uh, what was it like during hypergrowth? Because, you know, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I I would love to tell you that it was. It's funny because because now looking back across my career, I think really only twice or three times. I've been operating a business or founding, co-operating a business that that had a hypergrowth phase at all, right? And and the Equinix one was brutal. It was um, uncomfortable. We raised a, just under a billion dollars. That used to be a lot of money before crypto, before yeah. content. Well, remember, like, so this is pre. NASDAQ crash, we raised a billion, well, not a billion, but like 800 million across three years or four years, mm -hmm. you know, to the credit of um, Peter Van Camp, who we brought in to run the business and, mm -hmm. and Keith Taylor and, and uh, um, uh, Phil Keown, who was the CFO at the time. I mean, we did some really crazy financial deals um, and started an extremely aggressive build out with Bechtel Corporation to build out all you, you this. Had, you paid someone to build the data centers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we came up with a lot of original concepts and we designed them, had our own internal design team. And mm -hmm. We even hired John Pedro. Yes, he worked for Equinix yeah. after that. Well, uh, I remember that when things got tough, they stopped putting game rooms in the, uh, you know, in the Equinixes, so. Yeah, I think, you know, so I, I, I remember seeing you about the time that I knew that I couldn't stay because I was so, I was so stressed out. I mean, so, so first of all, you had the NASDAQ crash and if, and if having your entire net worth and the company's net worth wiped away in a course of six months, while your company's locked up from an IPO, I mean, that, that'll do it to anybody, but then throw on top of that, that the entire community of customers were going out of business. Yep. At Akamai, yeah. we discovered that, you know, like we were watching DSO, day sales outstanding. And it wasn't that our customers had stopped paying, which is what we thought. I remember when Tim Weller was the CFO came in and he realized that our customers didn't exist anymore. Like half our customers didn't just didn't exist. It is, it's crazy the amount of equipment that would go abandoned inside the Equinix data centers. And, and so we had a bunch of construction projects around the world that were like one quarter away done. And we realized 
that the only way to survive as a company was to pull out of those 20-year lease agreements and stop construction and, and you know, lay off three quarters of our team. Mm. And this is like all probably two or three weeks after 9-11. So, so, you know, this is, so hypergrowth during that initial phase where, you know, I, I, I learned what a sales marketing kickoff was, you know, and that, <laughs> you know, and, and, and watching uh, the contracts come in and, it was and, like Cisco in the 90s when, you know, the fax machine was out of paper and people would, you know, line up with the door to shove checks in your pocket, you know, because like it was it was, it was a great uh, spoiling of engineers around the world because that was when we decided it was OK to spend a quarter million dollars on a on a box at the core of your network, you know, and and. And I, and I think before that point, ISPs would do that to a certain extent, you know, the, the, you know, BFRs and whatever, but the, but there was this sort of limitless bank account that existed on the part of our customers and sitting in the middle, you got to play with all this really fun stuff. But then when it ended and I had to basically cut the entire R and D team, and we had some great guys, you know, Ted Hardy and, you know, Sean Donnellan and, and, you know, Ian Cooper was, was, was there. And, you know, uh, we had Dwayne Wessels working on caching, you know, back then. And we had this like crazy, great, fun, you know, uh, uh, team that all had to go at the same time. And I remember seeing you because I think it was around the time Richard Clark Mm-hmm. Yes. Was running the cybersecurity. Yep. What was he running? The well, it was the it was the so he was the cybersecurity advisor for multiple presidents. And That's so right. he got us involved when I was at Akamai with the National Communication System, NCS, before DHS, you know, was formed. And so um, I think I went to the White House for something. For some, because everything was stressful. We were like under attack, we were at war, we were, you know, everything bad was happening. And um, and I was on the road all the time. And I remember like I had pulled an all-nighter preparing for something, so I don't remember what government thing. And I'm waiting outside some office and I hear your laugh from behind the door, right? And you came out all like, you know, chummy with, I think it was Richard Clark. And I'm like, wow, Akamai got here first. I can't win. There's no way I can win this. He's already here. He already is telling people that that uh, peering is overrated, right? And uh, I've always been a big fan of peering. I know, but we were both. You were you were correctly advising that we needed to to revise our our infrastructure. In the sense this was, that- yes. So that was the thing that I did, which is ironic because someone just asked me to support. Yob Snyder has just asked us at Kentech if we'll support uh, SBGP. I think it's now called Secure BGP. I'm like, oh my God, the 90s wants its protocols back. But we actually have fast computers so we can do path validation. So right. for Richard Clark, I wrote something which is like, 
we should filter the source addresses of our packets and we should secure the routing and we should use the government purchasing power, which lasted like two minutes until the lobbyists heard about it. And, you know, I was like, everyone's worried about the, the authoritative name servers. That's not the problem. It's on any casted recursive name servers and we should support the infrastructure. And he, he had a good heart for that. Uh, oh, very, yeah. And, yeah. and I think thanks to you, called on a bunch of others. I remember, well, and, and Vince Cerf and, and Kathy Aronson. And uh, gosh, I, I just remember sitting around a table being fully intimidating, intimidated and realizing that I just, I, I kind of used up my resilience. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like there was a, a certain sense of responsibility. And I think you probably felt the same thing where, you know, we had kind of had fun building this thing and it had been this really fun sort of rise. And, and you know what, uh, this was pretty serious stuff. And, uh, and my, you know, I had three little kids mm -hmm. that I wasn't seeing ever because I was traveling all the time. And I was, you know, in DC half the time. Cause remember I lived in San Francisco back then. Yeah. And then, then right around that point, I moved to rural New York to try and escape. That's pretty much when I, like, I think I went to my last ripe and my last nanog for like a decade it was right around that time. And I, and I was planning on getting a teaching certificate and becoming a public school teacher and just disappearing entirely. Interesting. Yeah, that didn't work out as planned. But, but yeah, like I remember, like, it, like, like at that moment, I, I'll never forget hearing your laugh and thinking, oh, it's got to be Avi on the other side of that door. And it was it's funny and, because my brother Noam has a distinctive laugh. Also, you can tell where wherever he is on a floor. Um, and now he's running. Uh, he's just moved from running network, I think, at Akamai to well, cloud, but they call it compute because they partner with cloud providers but after buying Linode but it was something I spent a long time at Akamai not getting them to you know <laughs> start up a cloud but I mean I I think there's a couple things that um uh you know I've definitely felt um imposter syndrome and with some of the same people right I mean I was not a fan of the maps RBL but my interview for uh, AboveNet was, uh, for various reasons, writing a BGP daemon uh, to do optimized routing, there's some other stuff that didn't exist. And then Dave Rand gave it to Paul Vixie, who like, yeah. after he got it, sent me like five one-line corrections to my 3,000-line BGP daemon and, you know, to make it better, fix a bug and make it better. And I was like, wow. You know, I'm not worthy. And someone was like, Avi, who writes a PGP demon for an interview? You know, like, you know, and by the way, <laughs> can we just can we just stop right there for a second? You wrote what? I mean, look, I lots of people have. It's a it's a time honored way to take the internet down is to write your own BGP demon. It, it's well, that's but true. All you know at that next level, and so it's all in context, right? I mean, so um, so you know, you were. I, 
I'm going to say like the Forrest Gump, are you saying you're the Forrest Gump of the internet? You just happen to be there when all these things happened around it's you? Kind of, it's a little bit like that. I mean, I, I like to tell my Pax kids. And Equinix, Equinix, you know, in a lot of what is still there today, you know, in great culture is because of you and Bill and other people that, you know, yeah, weren't there, for, you know, decided not for various reasons to be there for, you know, the whole stay. But, you know, made the mark. On the other hand, what I hear you saying, not to put words in your mouth, is you do have to pay attention to what's in your head and not, you know, sometimes, you know, if you need a change, you need a change. So I, I think so. And I, and I think to some extent, I, I recognized how big, uh, you know, I mean, now Equinix is a Fortune 500 company. I mean, uh, you know, it's a very different universe. It's, it's, I think, known by its employees to be a wonderful place to work. Yeah. And, uh, and they treat their people extremely well. Um, they've sort of come back from sort of a position of, you know, sort of too much strength to one of a little more humility, despite their size. And, and I think have uh, done a lot of soul searching as a business over the last 15, 20 years. And, and really, is, it's a different place and, and a great place. But my strength was in the people part and the, and the sort of the growth early, early stage uh, of a business where you have to kind of accept a certain measure, a more, more risk and more sort of product development you know, trials and failures and, um, and a certain amount of uh, mentoring. So, so part of what I love to do, and I was so grateful that Al Avery gave me the opportunity to do this, you know, at PAX and then later as a co-founder, I would find people who were phenomenally good at something way better than I was. Uh, and I would say, Hey, I'll, I'll take care of you and make you VP of something, but I have one request. And that is that you, that you allow me to ask you stupid questions in front of your team so that I can learn. And I love that. And then there become a point where that was like actually interfering. Way, I prefer to say foundational questions. not. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I always sort of presented it on my sleeve, like, Hey, you know, I, you know, a classic example is, you know, I, I manage coders all the time now, you know, like I'm a lot of what I do is, is small. Right. And so I end up contracting coders or hiring them directly. And I mean, I learned to code in college, right. right? I have no miles whatsoever. And so I'll be like, Hey, so I realized in the public Slack channel, you don't like me asking you stupid questions about syntax. But do you mind if I ask, because I because I I love to do code review and I love to learn about code because I have a, a nerdy curiosity on how it all works or frameworks or right. what have you. And so I I've I slowly teach myself to code, you know, in the background in private. But if you want to work with me, sorry, you have to be willing to 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 deal Apparently, with I found technologists to be better than doctors I, i've offered to pay a lot of doctors to like <laughs> my questions and you know they're but but that's to say the doctors are really busy yeah. you know and multitask well, and well, so are so are developers know, and engineers 
but I've been more I, frustrated I than and my father who is a doctor is like I don't know I just do what they tell me it's like well I'm sorry that's not that's not me like I need to understand if I don't understand I can't you know that's always been my problem uh like I I was upset I missed RSA this week because Nanog conflicted and that's part of what I do at a trade show is go around and try to figure out I, I see what value is delivered. I understand the marketing, but if I don't know what it actually does, I can't reason about it. And, That's right. You know, the body is like the internet. You know, it's amazing that it works at all. Much less, it's not amazing that it breaks sometimes. It's amazing that it works at all. So, um, oh well. And all of the things that go wrong with the body also right. go wrong with the internet. <laughs> I was, that's, that's also true. And it's a complex distributed system with interdependencies and the symptom that you're seeing is maybe not the organ or the thing that, that, that is the actual problem, you know, underneath. But I remember thinking at when you, you know, you had left and I, I don't know if it was a year or whatever, and you popped up as CEO at DIG. And I remember someone I went to Hebrew school with it started CD now with his brother mm. and, you know, sold it. And I remember selling, sending a note to my ISP saying, I guess the real money's in content, not infrastructure. <laughs> and, and so it was like, is it though, what? but is it though? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, the jury's out. We'll have to wait and uh, tally up. But uh, I, that was, that was so much fun. Avi, I cannot, I oh. cannot tell you how, how luxurious it is to be a consumer of internet services versus a manager of them. Um, I gave one talk at Nanog as the CEO of DIG, where the whole point of it was, wow, it looks different from over here. It looks so yeah. different. And I, I got to play with things that I never thought I would get to play with because I was finally you know, building a, a presence. And, you know, I mean, we had our versions of, I, I don't know what you call it, product innovation or, you know, web 2.0 stuff that we were doing that was interesting. I was really obsessed with, you know, egalitarian, um, yeah. you know, democratization. I mean, after all, I mean, neutrality, I was, I was, you know me, I mean, I was super big on this whole idea that, you know, conflicts of interest ruin ecosystems and, and so, you know, they're never that simple, you know, um, you know, net neutrality, it's like, okay, well, yeah, you'd have equal access that maybe the government paid for you to build your network. So it's not really yours. On the other hand, if you can't filter DDoS, uh, then the internet doesn't work. And, you know, what is free speech was a little different in the nineties before people were doxing and, you know, sending killers to people's houses. And so like, it's, you know, as much as you want to be purist, the world has gotten definitely a lot more grayscale. Uh, well, this is right. This is right. You're you're 100% correct. It's not simple. Um, and the complexity of, of, you know, taking a vision, you know, whether it be an architecture for a network or, or a, um, or even a business model, right? Any of that complexity uh, that you introduce to it, your vision has to compromise. It, it just, it, it is a nature of how it works, right? There's a purist sort of view and there's components of it that compromise. And it's that act of introducing complexity to your simple vision that sort of, that's kind of, that is the, 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 the challenge I think 
the thing that sort of sucks the resilience out of you, right? And so if you can manage to process that, there was this one time at Dig when, um, I don't know if you would remember this, but uh, remember HD DVD? Yeah. And so there was like Blu-ray was fighting for dominance over HD DVD. Mm -hmm. And uh, some users, remember, so just for your, for your viewers. Um, uh, so dig was a, was a website where you would submit uh, a story in the form of uh, you could put a thumbnail on it, a title that you would write a link and a description. If you wanted to put a description, right. It would pull metadata. If it existed, remember this is like 2008 or 2007. So, you know, there's only so much metadata. And then you'd submit this, to a sort of a pooling area called upcoming and people would would see that and vote on it by digging and after a certain algorithm filter would would pass it would go to the front page of the website and then because of the attention the front page got it would be like a fire hose of traffic to whatever got there so there's a huge competition there was this thing called the slash dot effect before that that's right and then it became dig yeah that's exactly right and um so what happened was you know, Dig attracted a lot of, you know, uh, network people like nerds like me, hackers, people who loved Kevin Rose and his sort of like hacker TV show and and uh, and a whole lot of those kinds of folks. And so it had a very technical bent to it, although it was also, you know, uh, there'd be links that were completely sensational, too. Right. Mm-hmm. But one day somebody posted the encryption key for HD DVD. Right. And when it, this is, you know, after DM, you know, uh, uh, DMCA, um, mm-hmm. you know, type, uh, you know, takedown notices and, and chilling effects was out there. Um, and the EFF I was running was, a Usenet oh. provider at the time. So, you know, had to deal so with you know that there was like a lot of complexity and, and, and debate over who owned the content and whether or not it should be pulled down. Like who can, like, if if a someone was just someone was just taken off of Google last week, I forget who you know by a DMCA complaint. It was back in like a day, but you know, yeah, so, we were new to this and we were popular, and someone posted it and it got so many votes it went to the homepage. So then we get the takedown notice, and I meet with my my uh, my buddy Kevin about what to do. And we were like, oh, well, I guess we'll just take it down. You know, it was sort of already lower and lower and lower, and then it was off the homepage anyway. So we took it down uh, and the users didn't like that. So they reposted it again. And this process started to escalate. So finally they were posting it like once every two seconds, faster than we could manually take it down. So we wrote some code to take it down, right? To filter. The filtered out, and then they started recording themselves on video, playing guitar, singing the code. So you couldn't filter it, right? And it just started escalating, and it got to the point where they took down our website, effectively a DDoS attack. Right. And then we posted on our blog the the title of the blog was the code from HD DVD, and we're like, "You're right." It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you, right? And that was like a, a big awareness when you talk about that, when I talk about the resilience being 
No, you you think that a simple idea like neutrality can be compromised. And then to some extent it can be. But when you introduce some of these things, they also become religious. Emergent. Emergent. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. And you know, there's a there's a science fiction series, Ender's Game. And I don't know if you've read the yeah. book. There's a movie. But in the book, these two really bright kids become Locke and Demosthenes. And there's this idea of this worldwide thing. But even there, you know, it's like there's a contrast because there's the theory that was not like Usenet at the time or Dig or anything or Reddit or anything of like rational discourse, like, you know, Socrates and, you know, arguing with people. And, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, but that we've never seen that. On the other hand, the idea of like, people smart enough to actually influence the masses and drive emergent behavior. We're seeing that with influences. So that's right. It's, it's a pretty, you know, as a company or as, as not that kind of, you know, you have to have the sense of what is. Um, and sometimes, yeah, it can get away from you, you know, well, and, it's, the users. and it's sort of an evolution of the anarchy or the, you know, the internet, the internet, had the advantage of being an unregulated and anarchistic entity where, I mean, you, you would sometimes get de facto standardization way ahead of IETF, you know, way ahead of, you know, John and RFC saying, you know, there was some kind of uh, uh, official way of doing something because we just didn't have time to wait, right? It was growing that fast. It's funny because on the sidelines, while I'm not, you know, operating network companies, I am on the board of Megaport and I, and I do, of course, you, you know, I'm a network geek and I always will be. So I'm like watching with amusement, uh, ethernet. (laughs) And these questions we argued about what happens if there's 200 milliseconds between peers, do bad things happen? It was a question we had in the nineties and now we know. You know, it is a computer science problem, right? And you and you introduce real life and randomness and anarchy into these computer science models, and things sometimes happen that you don't anticipate. Well, I think that cool. (laughs) It is, and also it's something that that that. I'm going to say good startups, in my opinion, learn to embrace at a micro level is like, hey, we tried this and it didn't work. Now, it can be frustrating when you try it at a macro level and it doesn't work. But some of the best, some great companies that that have created a lot of value, I'm not just saying economically, but for users, came from things that didn't work. You know, Slack, I don't really understand. It just looks like a chat that doesn't crash, but clearly people like it. And that came from a gaming company or, or, you know, often it was like a whole company that didn't work. And then that taught the lessons, you know, the, the biggest one that I struggle with is, is focus because you want, you have customers that want stuff, you want to build it, but then, you know, that becomes difficult or, you know, really what you see is when you're building a, a company, you need to have you try to engineer what you want that to be. And most companies just become emergently copies of, you know, the people, the first employees, you know, and how they operate. Um, and that's been a really interesting time for people, you know, growing through COVID. 
where stuff that was undocumented and emergent and understood, um, you know, becomes, and yes. some companies designed for that, but very few before COVID were like, we are remote first, we don't have hybrid meetings, we're very thoughtful about this. And then, you know, uh, like actually letting people talk over the internet, thank God, works really well, but the human dynamics of it, you know, obviously is a little tricky. Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I, I launched my most recent business in September of 2020. What is that? It's, it's Scorbit, which okay. is the, 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 the company. I, I actually planned on launching it in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. You know, we have some like fun investors like Matthew Prince and, you know, and like we have like a bunch of network guys who are involved in this tiny, by the way, it's a small business. It's not a venture back business. It's, um, you know, you say small business, not, by the way, yeah, I, I mean, I don't view lifestyle business as a negative thing. I know in Silicon Valley, it's viewed as a negative word, but you know, I don't, yeah, I mean, this is, I'm definitely building this. Let me put it this way. Uh, in certain markets and certain products, if you don't have a big pool of capital to very quickly land grab and establish a first mover advantage, you can't succeed. And I'm not saying that that um, it's always good to do that, but um, a lot of the times it makes a lot of sense. Uh, in my, you know, I, I decided to go after something retro and build a, a network infrastructure for it. Largely because I knew <laughs> that no one else was crazy enough to try it it would require years of R&D to make work. And then once it worked, um, my audience was this fascinatingly diverse international crowd. Of largely high net worth, but not all. It's uh, true. It's true because pinball tends to be, right. you know, of course the brocade started growing and all these arcades and stuff. Did the new employees have to read Armada and Ready Player One to get the 80s context? Oh, if, if they haven't read it already, they're not allowed in the door, <laughs> but I. But I'll tell you, it is interesting. Um, if you look at the the cast of characters, if we had the the tops playing cards for <laughs> for Nanog or whatever, and you and you just sort of dealt out a random ten of from your deck of cards, I guarantee most of those people would probably either own or regularly play at pinball machine. Yeah, for whatever I was more like, I I was more dig dug to relax and Mm -hmm. Galaxian, and I I preferred writing stuff than to play. And I think Zaxxon on the you know was like it's cool through the thing, but I didn't get into pinball for whatever reason. So, and and I didn't get into it as much either. I was, I don't know about you, but the first time a networked game became available, the first one I remember that I played was there was a game called Spectre 7 on the Mac. And it was sort of battle zone, but multiplayer battle zone. Uh-huh. And it was like 1994, Apple you talk. I remember, I ran metaverses. We oh, called wow. them multi-user dungeon games. But that yeah. was how I learned IPC and distributed processing and all that. It was, it was an 80 by 24 metaverse, so, you know. I mean, isn't, and I think, and I don't know how many of us fit this model, but from a very young age, the, the thing that kept me dialing that modem over and over again, and but it was, yeah, it, the connectivity with other people yeah. was just 
I, I was a lot, of ham, I, a lot of people that were hams that went into you know started ISPs yes. and stuff like that. I Although I do I do have fondness for Gauntlet needs more quarters badly. You know it wasn't network, but you could play with your friends, so that was it, there is. But there is an interesting question, which is if you went back in time to 1984 or something or 82 and you walked into an arcade and Zaxxon was connected to a Zaxxon somewhere else. Wow. Yeah, that would have been the shit. It would have been <laughs> you the know, shit. someone else's uh, fighter. Robotron was too intense to, to, to have any third axis of other people, you know, participating. But yeah, that's true. Or even Battlezone, you're right, you know. Um, I, mean, I just feel like there is a, there is a, a nicely contained limited network problem that I've that I tried to solve. So so on one hand, we had to have the latencies of an MMO. Right. We're not doing really head to head because we don't really have to. It's right. a turn-based world. Mm -hmm. But but the visualizations and the and the response time had to have MMO latencies. And yet we had the volume that was so low that it's you know from a financial standpoint you can't you know and you don't need to buy eight hundred thousand servers and distribute them around the world and yeah so we're doing it serverless the whole thing <laughs> the whole thing it is so much fun to do it this way i mean it's inefficient in some ways but but i gotta say it is like thanks to folks like you who did all the hard SAS work over the last 10 years, we don't have to do anything anymore. Yeah. I did go to Equinix just a few days ago because our Force 10 switch in our one rack that me and a bunch of friends still operate, SV1, decided to kick the bucket. I can hook you up with a user wrist. Uh, that'll probably be better than running your Force 10. You know, I, we, we should have shut this off long ago, but we, we still host NetBeat. Remember Tasty Lime? Yeah. Yeah. It's still operational. And uh, I had to bring Jeff and it was Jeff Rizzo. And it was so funny because we were like walking to the data center and we hadn't been to uh network campus. One is basically in LA from, you know, if you're, if you're, in, you know, it's like so far South in San Jose that I'm like, are we might as well in? be. Yes. But we went from a place where it was an apple orchard, like the last time we were there. Uh -huh. And now it's three story buildings surrounding us. It was really weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do occasionally go to a data center, but, but again, I, I, hopefully it's all turnkey now. I could just yes. press a button. That's right. It's all magic. We only, I mean, I can't say we only run our own infrastructure because of the economics, because, you know, it's a nerding thing that I like, but we do, you know, the reason that it works, because every time, you know, half the people that we hire are like, we're doing what? We're making a cloud? Aren't we a SaaS company? Why are we making a cloud? And it's like, look at all these other SaaS companies that make cloud because they're our customers and they use cloud like we do, but not for always on stuff because that's really expensive. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, IDIC, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. That's the problem is that is enterprise cloud architecture, but that's, that's, that's a story for another time. So if you could go back, mm -hmm. And tell um, uh, tell young young Jay maybe before Netcom uh, or at whatever age um, a couple things to uh, to think about do 
um, put into, con you know, lessons to put into context? Do you have any idea what they would be? Well, the first thing I would say to young Jay is run. <laughs> Go teach. I, it, you, you do end up doing what you love in the long run in whatever job it is that you end up, you know, um, paying the bills with. Uh, you know, if you're, if you love to teach, you'll end up being a teacher. If you love to, um, you know, create new things. But if I could go back and talk to Jay, I, I would probably tell him that you don't have to be so angry. Mm -hmm. I, I spent I mean, the take it so personally or be so angry. It's, it's really both because the, um, the problem is, and, and I, I, I think a lot of investor types, try and paint this picture that you need to be somewhat detached in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, but what really happens is the most successful founders are the ones that literally can't do that. They're, they're people that they work with are their family. They take every customer negative thing totally personally. And, you know, I had not developed the ability, and I still have not fully, to, to really roll with that as a young entrepreneur. I was not prepared for what that would do to my life and my family and mm -hmm. everything else. And, I, and I'm, I'm proud that I survived it. But if I could give my former self some lessons, it would be around understanding that balance. Uh, even if I couldn't control it, just understanding it. Because remember, you're you know, you've got all these mentors and investors who are telling you you're, you shouldn't feel a certain way. I tried that in my, so Gail and I will be married 30 years, but it's our 31st anniversary of meeting at the Chicago World Science Fiction Convention this year. And I think I tried once or twice saying, okay, well, we've understood what the problem we were disagreeing about. So don't be angry. And I discovered that doesn't work. It's like, don't be ticklish, right? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, um, it, I think that taking it personal is okay. I think my, my lesson would be taking it personal is okay, but it's what you do with it and how you channel it and, and your willingness to express yourself. Right. Um, I, I think, think also my early work was what came out of a lot of insecurity and controlling, you know, trying to sort of control my world and sort of coming to peace with what you can't control is, is part of that. I mean, I'm, I'm 51 now. Um, Heavy beat. Yeah. You know, my, uh, my, I have three kids. I have a 24, 21 and 19 year old. My 24 year old was born two months before we founded Equinix. Oh my God. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that the under the subtext of that lesson is stay home, right? You know, you, you only get one time. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at 28 years, by the way. So, so you know, um, I don't know how Brenda tolerated all those years of it. But that is, that is like the very, like if there's one shining thing about that, it's the technical details don't really matter so much. You really just need to learn how to deal with that emotion. I think that is a, a great. And you must be feeling it now, Kentic, for crying. Awesome. 
I, I think I have a slightly different problem because I, I mean, I've seen CEOs that are manic, people that are manic that express it and either everything is always awesome or everything is horrible. <laughs> and that can be really uh, damaging. You know, it, it could be exhausting for everyone around. Now that's not me. Generally, I'm like, okay, well, I fucked up. Let me not fuck up the same way. Let me, you know, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you want. But what you have to remember when you start a company, and especially if you're CEO and there's hundreds of people is the words that come out of your mouth, people think are more important than you think, you know? So if you're just talking and thinking off the cuff, then someone's like, oh, but the CEO said this. And I even saw this at Akamai, you know, where all of a sudden three people will be working on a project because I was like, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And, you know, <laughs> it's like, and the manager would come to me, he's like, what did you ask someone to do? I didn't ask anyone to do anything. Oh, wow. But, you that's know, true. that's something that people tell, remind me. It's like, hey, you know, when you talk to people, remember. Um, so it's not as much, and it's, you know, focus again. Jason Lemkin, I call him the great Lemconi. You know, he's a SaaS VC. Um, and he hits on, you know, you could critique his content and say, well, it's so repetitive, but you look at his content, which is pointing out what, you know, they tell CEOs as you, as you grow your company, which is if you are only just getting sick of hearing yourself say it, then you haven't said it enough yet. Um, And, you know, in the early days, it's cool to be, um, you know, holding everything in your head and thinking about all the possibilities. But at some point, especially when you have, you know, 400 customers and 200 people, like not everyone can hold everything in their head and shouldn't, you know, and, you know, uh, so you need to carefully limit focus. And, you know, if you share everything, you know, it can be hard for people to see the patterns and get the details. So yeah, your company is not a routing protocol. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, except it is, I mean, you sort of do have a distributed state. Um, so, uh, that's right. Post pandemic, maybe it is. Uh, <laughs> but I've, I've seen that I've worked with some companies where I could see that not everyone has the whole picture. I'm like, Oh, I do that. I should, you know, you know, make sure to, uh, you know, enable communication. I think that's the word that, uh, is the thing that's most important to engineer around companies besides some of the core cultural stuff is communication, which, um, you know, I could be a better communicator. You talked about Matthew Prince. He's a great communicator. So yeah, he's um, fantastic. I, you know, the, the, the challenge right now is that I grew up and, and enjoyed building businesses uh, where it didn't, you know, they, they could be businesses that maybe from the outside in looked a little boring, mm-hmm. but because the chemistry and the social part of coming to the office every day was fun. And the yeah. people I love to work with when I would come, I would drive to work every day with Jeff Rizzo and Matt Wood. And we would, we would sit in the early Equinix days and, you know, and, you know, we'd have visits with folks like Martin Levy and, yeah. and you know, it's like, we were all kind of like seeing each other all the time and, and, uh, and riffing off each other and feeling that, that energy. And, in in a in a modern context and and you know this extends to not just network infrastructure companies but but any company i think that we lose so much of that which means that in order to overcome it 
we have to over communicate. We have to, you know, have a morning stand up when it's really not everybody knows what to do already. Like it's not really, it's more just a social check-in point. Well, I think we'll, we're still figuring that out in conferences. Now things are getting back, but still, how do you have the hallway track without, um, you know, how do you do that? And then how do you do that in a company or, you know, build the next dig type thing or with what Elon wants to do yeah. without, without facing the eternal September of Usenet or the, or the, you know, the, the, the encryption keys of dig or the, you know, all these things that happen as emergent behavior. So, uh, and any company, you know, um, if you look at Apple, you know, what happens when people don't like policy, you get emergent behaviors in companies too. In fact, the more you, you stand on your principles, you know, the more, uh, you know, it's reasonable for employees to say, hey, you know, if you believe this, then we believe this. So, uh, topics for future times, but Jay, yeah, thank you so much. Thank hey, you. It was for, my pleasure for sharing. Um, it's so, it's so great to see your face. It really is great to see you. We need to get you to a nanog at some point so you can get Bob I, walking. I'll do it. I, I'll do it, and you and I will stand back to back, like in, a, <laughs> like in you know, with swords, you know, as Our the clue savers. Yes, <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Cool. Well, Thank thanks so and thanks, uh, thanks Jay, and thanks for the audience for listening.